Good morning, my name is Paul, if I haven't met you before, and let me add my welcome to Ken's. It's great to see you all here, to be a part of our Easter Friday service. And today, my question for you is, why do they call it Good Friday? Now, that's not the first half of a joke, that's, um, that's a legitimate question that actually a lot of people ask. I remember seeing a couple of years ago, that was a, one of the trending searches on Google. That is to say that of all the things that people use Google for, uh, one of the top ones at the time was asking that question, why do they call it Good Friday? And it's a reasonable question, isn't it? For, for some people, it's Good Friday just because it's a, a public holiday, a good, good long weekend to go camping, spend with family, whatever it is. But I think more likely, the reason people are asking the question is because they understand something of, of what Good Friday is about. They understand something of the Easter story, but not enough to see why, they would, why we would call it good. Because at a glance, Good Friday doesn't really sound like a good day at all. I mean, we just read through the story. There was um, lots of wailing. There was crucifixion. Um, I've heard other names suggested. I've heard it called Black Friday, although I think that one's already taken later in the year. I think Catholics in Germany, I've heard them call it Sorrowful Friday, which might seem more fitting. Because with all that goes on, it looks like a terrible Friday, doesn't it? Uh, you'll see, if you've, got a, um, if you've got your sermon notes, if you've got sermon notes for bigger kids, you'll see that your first task is to draw the, good Friday, uh, the terrible Friday, so, so have a go at that. I'd love to see what you come up with. If you've got the, the regular sermon notes, um, you'll see that the first point there is... is to see that it is a terrible Friday. And so let's, let's have a look at the, the details of the text. Read with me from verse 26. Uh, in Luke, back in Luke 23, verse 26 says, As the soldiers led him away, they seized Simon of Cyrene, who was on his way from, in from the country, and put, him on, uh, put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Uh, if you're picturing that, you, you, can, you can see it, can't you? There's a, there's a parade through the streets of Jerusalem with, with Jesus at the front um, until he gets too weak to carry the cross and it's passed off to, to a man named Simon of Cyrene. And behind him is a, is a raucous demonstration of deep grief, mourning and wailing loudly as they go. In the passage directly before, Jesus was declared innocent and yet sentenced guilty. It's sentenced to death. And he's sent parading through the, the town, uh, carrying his cross to the place of execution until he can c continue no longer and, and the job is passed to Simon of Cyrene. And the crowds that have followed him throughout his ministry continue to follow him. him but for, this, uh, for them then, it was a devastating moment. Jesus was not... Uh, Jesus was not only someone they loved and admired, but he was their hope. And their hopes were shattered as defeat became clear to them. And when Jesus turns to them, he has no words of comfort to offer. Devastatingly, he turns to them in verse 28, and he says to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Instead of having words of comfort for them, he he has a warning of what is to come. He says in verse 31, sorry, if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? That is, they are living in a time when they've been given everything they, they could possibly need spiritually. 
In the past, they had uh, prophets and, and forefathers, but now they have Jesus himself, Jesus Emmanuel, God himself come to live with humanity as a man. They were living in a time of spiritual abundance, that the, the tree was green and abundant with life, and they crucified him. And so he says, don't weep for me, weep for your children. Why? Well, because this is the kind of, the world that they live in, a world that would crucify God's Messiah. They were given everything they needed and they, they, they spurned it. And if that's how they act in a time of abundance, how will they act when it's, when it's taken away? It's not a hopeful picture of humanity. And then as if to punctuate Jesus' point exactly, we see how Jesus is mocked by everyone around. We see all dignity stripped away as the Messiah King is uh, put up on a cross as a display for all to see his powerlessness. That was part of the idea. And the onslaught, onslaught of mockery begins. Read with me. He's mocked by the crowds as, as they pass by. Verse 35, they say, he saved, him, saved others. Let him save himself if he's, if he's God's Messiah. Then verse 36 and 37, that the soldiers mock him in a similar vein. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. He's even mocked by the criminal crucified alongside him who says in verse 39, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Do you hear what the common thread is there? They all see Jesus hanging on the cross, looking powerless. They've heard stories of Jesus, the Jesus who saves, and and the pictures don't seem to to add up. And so every one of them calls out to him, if you're really who you say you are, if you're the the chosen one, the king, the, the Messiah, then save yourself. And Luke tells us they're not really expecting him to do it. They're, they're mocking him. They're pointing, to, pointing out how helpless he looks after the huge claims that have been made about him. And so we've seen that, that it, this was a terrible Friday, really. It, it was a terrible day for Jesus' followers as they, they mourned the loss of a loved one and as their hopes for the future were shattered. It's a terrible day for humanity as, as it confirms the, the depths of their sinfulness, their, their rejection of God. And it's a terrible day for Jesus as, as all his dignity is stripped away and, and he's left vulnerable and mocked on the cross. And did you notice throughout that whole interaction, the only words we hear from Jesus as he's being crucified and mocked, did you, did you see them? Um, a bit further up in verse 34, the only thing we hear from him is these, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Isn't that extraordinary? Even with all of his dignity stripped away, Jesus begs for their forgiveness. Humiliated and filled with compassion. I tried to think of an example from my own life of a time when I've seen that, of humility, humiliation and compassion going together, but I couldn't think of one. They're not normally two emotions that go together, naturally. And when we're humiliated, we tend to either um, shut down and shut out or to, to arc back and, and, and fight. But for Jesus... Isn't his reaction extraordinary? Unjustly sentenced, put to death on a cross, mocked and scorned, and and yet he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And so why do we call it Good Friday? It's a day that was deeply sorrowful, completely unjust and humiliating, but it was a Good Friday because God's mercy is on display. So was it Good Friday? Absolutely. So, sometimes there are, 
there is something so good that it outshines all the bad. When, when people ask me how the last couple of years were for me, I, like most of you probably tend to think of all of the things that were really tough about lockdown. I think about, uh, for me, having to adjust to online study was way more difficult than I thought it would be. Um, having, spending most of my days kind of locked in a, a closet in our house because that was the only space I could find that could study. Um, and the, the isolation and loneliness that so many of us felt as we were separated from friends and family. But actually, a few things happened in that time that, um, that made me look back and say, actually, they, they were a good two years. Because uh, in those times, I became a dad for the first time. And, and what a privilege it was to spend the first couple of years around the family and to see kind of in a much more intense and close way to see Albie's first couple of years. And so despite all of the kind of really tough things about the last couple of years, when people ask me, I think actually, I think it was a good couple of years. Because for me, I'd say in that time, I learned to, to treasure my family. So despite all the hard, it, it was a good, good couple of years. And, and I think similarly, when we look back on that Friday, we see all the terrible things, but actually... God's mercy outshines them all. Because on Good Friday, God's mercy is on display. We see that confirmed as, as we keep reading. So come with me now to, to verse 39. One of the criminals who hurled insults at him, um, yeah, sorry, one, one of the criminals hurls insults at him, but the other one, uh, we get an extraordinary insight into this beautiful conversation about forgiveness as Jesus talks with the criminal on the other side. So read with me from verse 39. I'll read the whole interaction again. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished for justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Just pause on that for a moment. Imagine being there, imagine being that man. We don't know his story, but we know, one, that he's being crucified for his crimes. The worst, most humiliating, excruciating punishment in the Roman repertoire. And we know, too, that he, at least, believed that he deserved it. This man has not lived a life that he's proud of. Stripped naked, left to die, and he says, yep, that's about what I deserve. That is, that is tragic. That is a devastating picture. And so with all of that acknowledged, he turns to Jesus with a profound request. He knows that he's not good. He knows that he's got nothing to offer. Instead, he calls upon Jesus' mercy with a simple but profound request. He says, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, remember me. That is to say, when, when you come, come as king. And that, that is a profound insight, isn't it? For him to be hanging there on a cross next to Jesus, to, to look at him and say, I can see that you're being crucified right now. I know we're both on the brink of death, but still when, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Now, for all his faults, he gets something about Jesus that no one else seemed to understand. This is a shining moment for him. Jesus looks defeated. Everyone around is taking the chance to mock him, to point out how powerless he looks. This guy, in some way or another, this guy gets something about Jesus. He gets that Jesus is more than an earthly king. 
He gets that Jesus', Jesus crucifixion isn't an end for Jesus. To look at Jesus in a moment like this and to believe that he's about to come into his kingdom, well, he gets that, that death is not a final defeat. The other thing he gets, which is quite profound, he gets himself. He gets that he has nothing to offer Jesus. He looks at his life and he has nothing to call on. Instead, he, he realizes that he can call on Jesus for mercy. He gets that Jesus is, is, is all he needs and so he calls on Jesus' power and compassion. Remember me. And so, it is truly a Good Friday because on this day we see God's mercy on display. And so, and finally we come to the death of Jesus. The beautiful and devastating death of Jesus the Messiah. In Jesus' death we see that God's mercy is not only on display but actually God's mercy is achieved. There are a couple of things that show us this. Um, so read, read with me again. We, we see that this is much bigger than it looks. What, what happens looks very unimpressive from a worldly perspective. Jesus hanging on a cross, almost out of breath. But verse 44 shows us that it's something much bigger than it looks. So in, in verse 44, uh, it says, It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. It's that the whole sky turns dark, that... The whole cosmos shifts as God works to show us that this is something much bigger than it looks. And then, in verse 45, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain in the temple was the, the one place that divided humanity from God's presence. Everything inside the, the most holy place is where God dwelt, and everything outside is where humanity dwelt. And, and they almost never could meet because humanity's sinfulness made God unapproachable in His perfect holiness and, and inapproachable light. Sin was an impassable barrier. And so as the, as the curtain tears, it represents the breaking down of the barrier between God and man. Sin is no longer the barrier that it once was because Jesus takes upon Himself the weight of the world's sin. I sometimes think of a three-headed dog named Fluffy. <laughs> Does anyone know who I'm talking about? Uh, this, is, this is Harry Potter and, and Fluffy was, was the impassable barrier for them to get from where they were to where they needed to be. Or if that's not your thing, the, the doors of Durin that stopped Frodo and the fellowship from passing through the Misty Mountains. Or if that's not your thing, well then think of any story really. <laughs> um, any kind of epic story has, usually has some kind of big barrier that they need to overcome, something that is uh, insurmountable and they have to find their way around it. Well, in the, in the story of Israel, in the history of Israel, uh, throughout the Old Testament, the barrier for them between where they were and where they wanted to be was the curtain. It was a, a huge, finely woven curtain of blue and purple and scarlet, which reminded God's people that they could not simply approach God, that God was holy and they were sinful. Only the high priest could enter, and even then, only once a year. The curtain was, was the big barrier between them and God because the curtain represented their sin and their imperfection against God's perfect holiness. And so we see here that Jesus' death is no accident. The whole tone shifts when we, we get to the death of Jesus here. Up until this point, all of these things have been happening to Jesus. He's been par paraded through the streets. He's been crucified. He's been mocked. But now as we zoom in on Jesus, we see so clearly that he is in command of the situation. 
as the whole sky turns dark, the curtain tears in two, and he calls out in a loud voice, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said, said this, he breathed his last. Uh, the weight of sin is taken upon himself, the barrier torn down, so that anyone who puts their trust in him might be saved. And then as, as we conclude, we're given three different reactions to Jesus' death and we're invited to consider our own. It seems to move in concentric circles from the centurion beside the cross in verse 47 who, despite knowing nothing of Jesus really, he, he still concludes just from watching his death, surely this was a righteous man. To the, the crowds who had followed Jesus and who beat their breast and walk away. That is, they acknowledge the terribleness of the situation and they see that nothing can be done and so they, they go on their way. And then finally, to, to Jesus' closest, to his, his followers and the women who were with him. But they're not really the ones who get it either. They stand at a distance watching. And it, as if there's still so much to process. And we see as the story goes on, that they didn't really understand what was going on. They had such high hopes for Jesus and, and they didn't know what to make of this. So they stand at a distance and they watch. And I think we're given this kind of array of different reactions in order to invite us own to consider what, what is our own reaction to Jesus. So just to finish, I'd like to ask you, what is your reaction to the story of Good Friday? We've seen that on the one hand, it was a terrible Friday, devastating for his followers, emblematic of the, the evil in our world and humiliating for Jesus. And yet in all that, we see, we've seen Jesus hyper-focused on forgiveness, on mercy. He begs mercy for those who wronged him. He promises mercy to the criminal next to him and he achieves mercy by, by breaking down the barrier between God and humanity as he takes the weight of humanity's sin on himself so that anyone who trusts in Jesus might be saved. But what's, what's your reaction as you hear that story? You, you might, on the one hand, like the crowds, acknowledge the, the terribleness of the situation, um, come to an event like this and, and say, yeah, what, what a great thing Jesus has done for us and then move on with your life uh, beat your breast and move along or you might be more like the criminal on the cross who, who feels like they have nothing to give and can, and, and can lean on Jesus for mercy I'm not sure what your reaction to the, the Good Friday story might be but if I could be so bold I'd like to recommend a reaction my own um, actually not my own the book of Hebrews uh, gives us three it says that since the barrier has been broken down, there's three things that we should do in response. Now that the curtain has been torn in two, it says, therefore, let us draw near to God. That's the first thing. That is, if our, if our faith is in Jesus, if we have confidence that our consciences are cleansed by his blood, then we can approach God freely and confidently. Come to him in prayer. Lean on him for, for wisdom as you read his word. Draw near to God. That's the first thing that Hebrews tells us. Second, uh, it says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. That is to say, if Jesus really died for our sake in our place, then there's no room for half-heartedness. So stand firm, let nothing move you. Hold on to with all your strength because that, that is a precious thing worth holding on to. And then the third, it says, let us consider how we may spur one another on. That is to say, keep, keep coming along to church, keep meeting with other Christians, and think hard, not just about what you might get out of that, but um, think hard about how you might be able to encourage them, to spur them on to love uh, those around them more, to spur them on to love God 
more deeply, spur them on to good deeds in their life. That's where Hebrews takes it. If you don't want to think more about that, I'd encourage you to, to read that in your own time. It's Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 25, if you want to look it up. It's Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 25. Uh, but for now, would you join me as I close in prayer? Merciful Father, you are filled with compassion and you are so gracious. We come to you knowing that like the criminal on the cross, we have nothing to offer you. And so we thank you that in Jesus, the barrier was broken down, that sin was defeated and we can approach you freely now in prayer. We pray that you would help us to trust in you wholeheartedly, to draw near to you with a sincere heart and full assurance, to stand firm and to hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess and that we would be people who lift one another up, to spur one another up uh, on to love and good deeds. And we pray all of this leaning not on our goodness or our godliness, but on Jesus' final work on the cross to bring us to you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.